listeners, this is Lee Johnson, just dropping in to let you know that your Hotel Bar Sessions co-hosts, Jason Reed, Rick Lee, and I, are currently hard at work gearing up for Season 8, which drops on September 1st. We've got a lot of exciting topics and guests lined up for the next season, but for the intervening weeks, we'll be releasing replays of some of our favorite episodes from past seasons. So enjoy today's replay episode, one of my personal favorites, Revolutionary Mathematics with Justin Jock. You're listening to Hotel Bar Sessions, the podcast where three philosophers sit down at the end of a long conference day to chop it up at the hotel bar, which, as we all know, is where the real philosophy happens. Welcome back to another episode of Hotel Bar Sessions. I'm Rick Lee, and I am joined by my co-hosts, Jason Reed and Lee Johnson. This week, we are talking about revolutionary mathematics with Justin Jock. But before that, Stacy, our bartender, just came over, and she would like to know what everyone's drinking. And I would like to know, before we get talking, whether you have any last-minute questions. So, Jason, what about you? What are you drinking, and do you have any last-minute questions? Yeah, I'm going to have a Baby Genius, which is a pale <laughs> ale from Bissell Brothers, just down the road from me here in Portland. It's a great summery drink. And my question is really more of a comment, and it's, <laughs> what's it going to take for people to take global warming seriously? Yeah, come on, people. <laughs> Lee, what are you drinking, and do you have any last-minute questions? I'm going to have a Fireball and Diet Coke. Somehow, that was my usual drink for like three straight seasons, and then I dropped it because you were shaming me. But I'm going back <laughs> to my normal drink of a Fireball and Diet Coke. And, you know, I also have a question, which is really more of a comment, but why are we getting these extra charges whenever we order from restaurants or visit restaurants that are basically like labor costs of the restaurants. It's really driving me crazy. I mean, if you can't pay your workers, then you need to be out of business. But speaking of that, I am happy to announce today's guest, Justin Jock. Justin is a visualization librarian at the University of Michigan who works at the intersection of philosophy and technology He's the author of Deconstruction Machines, Writing in the Age of Cyber War, and most recently, Revolutionary Mathematics, Artificial Intelligence, Statistics, and the Logic of Capitalism. I want to just say right here that this is one of the best books I've read all year. I'm really excited to have Justin here. So, Justin, welcome to Hotel Bar Sessions, and we want to get your drink order and wondering if you have any questions before we get started. Well, thanks, Lee. Yeah, I'm kind of a creature of habit, so I'm going to have a Manhattan with rye uh, nice. on the rocks. That's my go-to drink. And I guess I have a question that's maybe more of a comment, too. <laughs> <laughs> I know I'm like two months late to this, but have you all seen the rehearsal? I just started watching it, and I know that there's a lot of people who have a lot of things to say about you know emotional manipulation and stuff like that, but I also think there's a lot of really interesting stuff going on about predictability and gaming things out ahead of time. And I can't decide if I like it or not yet, but I think there's a lot, <laughs> a lot to talk about there. Well, Justin, we're really glad to have you here today. But before we jump into things, I want to ask Rick what he's drinking. And I'm assuming that he has a question that's more of a comment. 
So I am going to take a page out of Jason's book, and I'm going to have a Metropolitan Crankshaft. Metropolitan is a local brewery here, and I was just at their brew pub recently, and their Crankshaft is their version of Kolsch, and it's a nice summertime beer. And And I do have a question that is actually more of a comment, but it is an actual question, <laughs> and that is... Why do 53% of Trump supporters think that a civil war is imminent? I don't get it. I, I mean, I'm afraid I do get it. Yeah, I was like, really? <laughs> 53% though. I mean, come on. Yeah. So, Lee, I know we're talking about revolutionary mathematics this week, but tell us what we're going to be thinking about and talking about. Well, I'm going to guess that all of our listeners have wondered at some point – why does Netflix ask me to pick what movies I like when I first sign up in order to recommend other movies that I like? Or how does Google know what search results are most relevant? Or why does it seem like every tech company wants to mine as much data as they possibly can for me? Well, it turns out that this is all because of a shift in theoretical and mathematical approach to probability. So Bayesian statistics, the dominant model used today by machine learning systems, informs everything. Investing, credit rankings, political predictions, and increasingly what we think we know about the world. In his book, Revolutionary Mathematics, which again, fantastic book. Everyone go and buy this book. It's great. Justin provides a roadmap for us to understand this revolution in statistics that happened with the Bayesian model. And consequently, he's able to provide an important context for non-statisticians like me, and I'm guessing most people, <laughs> to understand the strange logic of algorithmic technologies. I mean, who knew there was a metaphysics to statistical models or an epistemology of statistical models or maybe even a politics of statistical models? Justin knew. That's who knew. <laughs> and he explains it all in this book. But that explanation is really just the mise-en-scene for another revolution that Justin is calling for, namely a revolutionary mathematics that does not evacuate human relationships of human agency, that doesn't use machines to exclusively manage human affairs, and that does not solidify and reinforce our subjective human errors by painting them with the shiny metallic veneer of objective or scientific or mathematical truth. So today we're going to be talking about the revolutions in mathematics that we've already experienced in the last 300 years, how the Bayesian model has been instrumentalized and maximized by contemporary techno-capitalism, and how we might imagine a future revolutionary mathematics that doesn't do away entirely with Bayesian prediction, but may at least get Thomas Bay's robot boot off our necks. <laughs> <laughs> start with some intro material for those of us who are not statisticians. So in your book, you argue that a fundamental shift or revolution has taken place in the mathematics and understanding of probability. So can you explain the difference between frequentist and Bayesian statistics? Sure, I'd be happy to. You know, I think it's worth saying at the beginning that within these schools, there are different debates and, and schools of thought. So this will be sort of very cursory, but basically frequentism, which is the statistics that started about in the 1920s and oversaw most of the 20th century, 
sees probability as an objective fact of the world. And the way in which it does that generally is by measuring the long run frequency of some system or some sort of prediction or something like that. The easiest way to conceptualize this is if you think of flipping a coin, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of times, and it lands heads half of the time and tails half the time, then the probability of it being heads is 50%. It's really based on this long run frequency of a series of events. And because it's based on that, it's supposed to be objective and not really be based on this kind of mindset of the experimenter. On the other hand, Bayesian statistics tend to be subjective. And so what this means ultimately is that probability is less a measure of something that exists in the world, but more a measure of a researcher's uncertainty. So it has to do with the amount of knowledge you have, sort of what you think the most likely thing to happen is based on the evidence that you have. And there are a couple of implications of this difference between objective probability and subjective probability. And one of them is that frequentism can't really technically talk about individual events. Mm -hmm. There are ways in which frequentists have gotten around this, but in a sort of strictly frequentist perspective, you can't give a probability to the likelihood that, you know, Hillary Clinton's going to win an election because it, there's not a long run frequency. Whereas Bayesian statistics does allow you to do that because it's based just on this subjective belief. And likewise, frequentism tends to require that one sort of set up experiment, sort of, you know, if you think about testing COVID vaccines, if you have a group of people, you give some of them the vaccine, some the placebo, and you figure out what the likelihood that the vaccine is actually preventing infections or serious outcomes. And Bayesian statistics allows, because it's subjective, sort of a constant updating of belief. You can say, okay, I yeah. think there's a 70% chance of rain tomorrow, and then it gets a little bit cloudier, and maybe you update your prediction to 75%. And we can talk about this more, but I think you can already start to see how it lends itself to digital and informational capitalism, because you can constantly update your predictions as new data is brought into the system. Justin, I once saw a teaching demonstration by Dan Rose and I think it was a demonstration to show the difference between these two models. He took a deck of cards and he asked all of us who were the mock students in this demonstration to say what we thought the probability that the card he was going to deal us was red or black. And on a frequentist model, that would be like a coin flip. That would be a 50% probability that it would be red or black. So he starts dealing and goes to each one of us, you know, and asks us this question, goes around, and it's red, 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 <laughs> red, and it keeps becoming red. And by the third round, he said, okay, what do you think this next card is going to be? And I said, I think it's going to be red. And he said, why do you think that? And I said, because I'm beginning to suspect that your deck is filled with red cards. <laughs> and he said, exactly. So now you've modified your assumption about the probability based on this experience you've had. Is this a way to capture Bayesian versus frequentist models here? Definitely, because as you're gaining more information, you update your predictions and your view of the world. I mean, there are ways in which you could design a frequentist experiment and say, okay, we're going to look at the next five cards and calculate probability that the deck is 50-50 based on the outcome of that. But one of the sort of weird things, some researchers, especially in the, in the 60s and 70s, started to understand and play around with more, is that in fact, because the design of the experiment is so important to frequentism, in a lot of ways, frequentism ends up being more subjective than Bayesian mm -hmm. statistics, because first of all, you have to define an experiment. And part of that is defining what class of events are part of the system. 
And there's actually this thought experiment where you can actually show that for flipping a coin, depending on the design of the experiment and essentially what's in the researcher's head in frequentism, it determines whether the results are significant or not. So anyway, that's a, that's a long way to say, yes, it does sort of show the difference, but there are ways in which you could design a frequentist experiment to determine those facts as well. Rick, your example reminds me of that Better Call Saul scene where he's calling a bingo game and he just keeps drawing B numbers. <laughs> he's like, <laughs> so Justin, this is something that you talk about a lot in your book, but can you say a little bit more about the truly subjective nature of the Bayesian statistical model? You know, one of the really interesting things I found when I was doing the research for this book and, and came back to is that contrary to, I think, what we learn in a lot of statistics classes or even talking to scientists about experimental design, is that probability isn't a real thing. Mm -hmm. It doesn't actually exist. I mean, maybe, you know, maybe if you get into quantum mechanics or something like that, but in this macro level world that we live in, there is really no such thing as probability, right? If I, you know, if I flip a card out of a deck, it's either red or it's black. It's not 50% right. red, 50% black. And so in a lot of ways, probability actually is this kind of metaphysical supplement to the world. This fact that we create that has these laws that govern it, obviously the probability calculus, but it really is a sort of an, an intellectual invention for a world that is not actually probabilistic. And so in a lot of ways, frequentism, I think you can read the history of it as sort of revolting against this fact, trying to create this kind of phantom objectivity. Whereas what Bayesian statistics does is it really embraces this subjective nature and says that probability is actually a result of essentially not knowing what's going on in the world, right? You know, if I think about tomorrow, either it's going to rain or it's not, but I don't know that, or, you know, even a meteorologist doesn't know that. And so probability is a reflection of that fact. And so what Bayesian statistics allows us to do by being this subjective measure is it allows us to really ask these, I think, really interesting questions about what our assumptions are of the world, how we make those assumptions, and the rules by which we can update those assumptions. It's a very Spinoza's point, right? Things either happen or they don't. Probability only exists in terms of our way of making sense of the world because we don't know whether or not something is going to happen. We construct a probability, but the probability is grounded as much in our ignorance or our partial and incomplete knowledge of things as it is in anything about the world itself. More a reflection of how we perceive and act in the world rather than the world itself. And one of the things you talk about in terms of the Bayesian model is more about acting and less about predicting. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the role that acting plays in this sort of shift to the more subjective form of statistical knowledge. To me, at least, I don't know about to other people, but it's a really interesting history that I think has been kind of underexplored in our discussion about algorithmic culture and media in the 21st century. But the, the sort of the initial movement in this shift actually takes place within frequentism. So there's this guy, Ronald Fisher, at the beginning of the 20th century, who's really sort of the founder of frequentism. In a lot of ways, I, I talk about in the book that his approach is this very kind of agricultural approach. It's really about detecting group level difference. You know, you could imagine his in the field trying to figure out whether one fertilizer works better than another. And it's built around this idea, a sort of a lone scientist or a lone researcher trying to figure out what the truth is. But one of the problems with this approach is in a lot of ways, it's actually very conservative because it doesn't really allow you to assign a number to whether or not something's true. And this gets back to not being able to assign a probability to an individual event like a hypothesis. You know, in sort of a strict Fisherian frequentist interpretation of probability, you can't say, OK, there's a 70 percent chance that this fertilizer is better than this other fertilizer. 
And so these two other guys came along, Egon Pearson and uh, Jersey Naiman, and they said, okay, this is all really exciting, but what can we do with this? Because we can't actually assign probability to a hypothesis. And so they invented what they called inductive behavior. And the idea was if it was 95% likely that the one fertilizer was better than another, you could act as if it actually was. And so in a lot of ways, they really tried to take this Fisherian approach and tie it to economics. And so they developed these models where you can calculate the costs of being wrong in, in one direction. So, you know, the fertilizer isn't better or wrong in the other direction. It is better, but you think it's not better. And so they tie it into this economic calculus figuring out not so much what is absolutely true in the way that we think about heroic scientists working away in the laboratory and in much more in, in economic terms of, of what is the most profitable thing to do. And then this really gets picked up and codified into how we think about Bayesian statistics, especially by this guy, uh, Leonard Savage, who was writing mostly in the 50s, but into the 60s as well, I believe. And he said, Neyman and Pearson have really got this figured out. It, it is actually an economic calculus. There's not some sort of way that you can understand these things as directly tied to truth itself, but it's really about calculating what the most profitable thing to do is. If you start to think about the fact of probability as a subjective measure, there then becomes no way that you can actually determine whether your probability is right or not, right? If I say there's a 70% chance of rain tomorrow and it doesn't rain, I can say, aha, well, that was the 30%. It just happened to be the 30%. And so it becomes non-falsifiable if probability becomes subjective. And so there are multiple different ways that you can justify using the probability calculus. But one of the ways that Leonard Savage really advocated for was what's called the Dutch book argument. And I, I talk about this at length in the book. The Dutch book argument is based on the exchange of gambling contracts. A Dutch book is a scenario where no matter what happens, you lose money. So you can, you know, you can think of a scenario where you put money on three different horses and no matter which horse wins, you, you end up losing money. And you can actually derive the entirety of the probability calculus from the desire to not have a Dutch book made against you. Uh -huh. If two events are mutually exclusive, so rain or not rain, you can't say that, oh, there's a 60% chance of rain and a 70% chance of not rain. And you can derive that law from essentially converting your probabilities into gambling contracts and trying to not have a Dutch book made against you. And so I think really the interesting point of all of it is that at the end, Probability only really makes sense if we think about it in terms of exchange and profit and value. What's striking to me in your description of the economics of this approach to probability is how similar it is to Pascal's wager. Because there, the question is not necessarily the truth, but if I line up all the options for the existence of God— Either God exists or doesn't exist, and then either I believe God exists or I don't believe God exists. He really then just analyzes what are the potential payoffs and what are the potential downfalls. And really, the only way I could lose is if I don't believe that God exists. And the only way I can win is if I do believe God exists. Again, the truth of it is irrelevant. The payoff, though, is what Pascal is really interested in. Oh, that's fabulous. I had never really thought about that before, but I really like that. That's, yeah, absolutely right. When it becomes really difficult to figure out how you translate truth in a world of uncertainty, the only way that we've really, I think, figured out how to do it is by translating it into economic calculus. So I thought I heard you say that in this Bayesian model, 
what I'm testing is the probability of an assumption or a hypothesis being true or maybe true isn't the right word here, but profitable, that it'll have a payoff, whereas the frequentist is judging the probability of this event happening or not happening. Do I have that correct? Close. So frequentism in a lot of ways really is this sort of torturous logic to try to get itself to make sense. And what frequentism actually does, because it can't assign a probability to a hypothesis, you have to think about it in terms of difference. So let's go back to, well, let's go back to a vaccine or something like that. So we have a placebo group that doesn't get the vaccine. And then we have a group that does get the vaccine. And of course, there's going to be natural variants in terms of who gets sick and who doesn't get sick. But we want to know if the vaccine group gets less sick than the placebo group. What frequentism does is it actually says, okay, let's imagine a world where there's no difference, where essentially both groups are getting a medicine that doesn't do anything. And then what it measures, and this is the p-value that statisticians talk about, is actually the probability that we get the data that we got given this null hypothesis that there's no difference, the probability of getting that level of difference or greater. One of the problems we run into today is actually that people then take the p-value and interpret it in a Bayesian framework. And they say that, you know, there's a 3% chance that the difference we observed is just due to chance, so the null hypothesis. And they interpret that as saying there's a 3% chance that the null hypothesis is true, which isn't actually what it's measuring. And this is what Fisher was in a lot of ways very conservative and really warning people against was saying, no, in this imaginary world where there's no difference that we got the data that we got. And so the real difference in what makes Bayesian statistics so powerful is that it actually can give you a probability that the vaccine is effective. Yeah, the other advantage of Bayesian statistics, of course, is that the more information you have, the easier it is to adjust those probabilities. And if I could just kind of repeat, I think, the crux of Rick's question, it does seem like on the frequentist model with the vaccine example that you just gave, the question that we're asking is, is the claim it's better to get the vaccine than not to get the vaccine? Is that hypothesis true? Mm -hmm. Whereas on the Bayesian model, we're asking Given the risks and rewards of being vaccinated or being unvaccinated, should I get the vaccine? Mm. And of course, there are many reasons why I might know enough information to understand that there's a high probability that I'm actually in that 3%. And so the answer would be, no, I should not get the vaccine, even though on the frequentist model, it's still true that the claim it's better to get the vaccine than to not get the vaccine is true. Yeah, absolutely. And in a lot of ways, I think you're right that one of the advantages of Bayesian statistics is that it does allow us to kind of draw in a bunch of additional information. And because you can have a probability assigned to an individual event, you can make much more personalized recommendations. And we see this in the ads that we get from Google. And But to give another medical example that I, I talk about in the book, and I think is really telling there was a long period where the government recommended against getting certain tests for prostate cancer, in part because what was happening was so many people were testing positive, even though they would never go on to develop cancer, and the interventions that they used to prevent it from getting worse were so detrimental and caused sort of all these kind of long-term health effects. But I think it was in 2017, or anyway, the, the late teens, that the government revised their recommendation and said that, okay, now it's okay for a certain group of people to get the test. And it's not that the test got more accurate, that there was a lower rate of false positive. It was just that actually the period when they said don't do the test, 
doctors learned that they should stay away from doing the interventions and recommend more monitoring. And so it wasn't that the test became more or less accurate. It was that the costs of doing the test and the likelihood of an intervention that was unnecessary and had bad health outcomes decreased. And so I think that's a really nice example of how Bayesian statistics and this economic calculation plays into it. Yes, you're welcome, guys. One of the things that you talk about, which I find very striking, is the use of these Bayesian statistical models to be as much of a revolution in the production of knowledge as sort of Taylorism and Fordism were in the production of things. That the economic impact of this, that the transformations and what statistical models make possible in terms of the production of knowledge of people's habits, shopping, and so on and so on, is as profound of a transformation of the economy as Fordism and standardization was for production of material things. So I wonder if you could just talk more about what this revolution in knowledge production looks like. You know, one of the things that to my mind makes it really important is that even though Bayesian statistics is subjective, it allows the automatic production of knowledge. In addition, obviously, to the growth of computation and the decreasing cost of computation and data production, it really is this change in how we think about probability, how we think about knowledge that allows, despite it being subjective, to automate the production of this kind of knowledge. And so, you know, I I think a lot about the shift from advertising that was oftentimes a very simple grid based on, you know, gender and maybe a few different age categories and would test different campaigns and then go with whichever one was the best. And you can see in a lot of ways that that's a very kind of frequentist approach. Like, I mean, they really did, maybe not with the same rigor that we expect of our scientific colleagues, but they really did sort of hypothesis testing on, you know, on what ads Mm -hmm. would work the best. Whereas now we have this very kind of real-time A-B testing where you send out thousands of ads and you tailor them to different people and you automate the entire production of these kinds of things. And so in a lot of ways, it's allowed us to remove humans from the loop for a a lot of decision-making and made, in a certain sense, knowledge production automatable in a way that I think is analogous to how we made factories automatic over the course of the 20th century. Hey, we couldn't hear you while you were shouting into your headphones. So if you have feedback or suggestions for future topics, or if you just want to pick a fight with one of our co-hosts, or in fact all of us, just visit us at www.hotelbarpodcast.com and click on the interactive page. If you want to belly up to the bar with us, at least virtually, you can always email an audio clip to hotelbarpodcast at gmail.com. If it's interesting, we're going to steal it from you. If it's not, we'll send you our Venmo handles and you can virtually buy us a drink. One of the frustrating things I find is the stupidity of current online advertising. So newspaper editors used to say that our advertising reaches 10% of the people. The problem is we don't know which 10%. (laughs) And I take it that using AI models, including Bayesian probability, is supposed to help target those even smaller percentages advertising will be effective to. But then I'm wondering... Why do I see an ad for the product I just bought? (laughs) That seems to be dumb. Now, is this a 
problem with the probability or is it a problem with the AI model or the programming? Where does that problem emerge? These systems are not tied to being right. They're really tied to being profitable. And I think that that's where the problem actually comes in, that it actually connects to an entire system of political economy, of the types of labor that are required to produce both these models and to produce the data. And so in a lot of ways, there's actually very little incentive to be right, but there's a lot of incentive to produce profit. And so I think that the ridiculousness of all of these systems and the weird recommendations that they make is actually the ways in which they're trying to, you know, maximize profit. And one of the examples that I always go back to is this was probably a decade ago, I was listening to the radio and they were talking about Square, you know, that it was one of the first iterations of this payment processing thing where you plug it into right. a phone or an iPad, you could swipe it and it was supposed to be very easy. And they had a system for algorithmic fraud detection. So if they thought a vendor was ripping people off or something, they would shut down their account. And it turned out they were shutting down all of these business owners' accounts. And there was no system in which to like go and get your account turned back on. There was like no person you could call. This, I think, potentially even drove people out of business because they all of a sudden couldn't process credit cards. But Square, I think at that point, determined that it was easier to just kick them off and not worry about it than to pay for people to adjudicate these and fix it and that sort of thing. And so the outcome is that these systems, just like capitalism in general, produces all this waste and inefficiency. And also, I think it's important to remember that these things are designed for optimizing at a very local level. It's not like there's an algorithm running the entire economy. It's just making individual decisions on which ad you should see. And sometimes the forces that push on local optimization actually create the most ridiculous solutions to these kinds of problems. I'm so glad that you bring this up because this is one of my favorite parts of your book. First, you're really introducing a reading of Marx's idea of objectification, where you say a lot of people tend to think that Marx means objectification in the sense of treating a human being like an object. But he also means, or I think you want to argue he more so means, that the term objectification means using objects to manage human affairs. And I love the example you give in your book, which is of a gate agent, like an airline gate agent. And you go up and you're trying to change your flight. And she says, you know, I'm sorry, the computer won't let me do it. (laughs) And we all know that that's true. There actually is nothing here Mm -hmm. she can do. The agency there has been entirely surrendered to the knowledge of the machine and the machine is entirely governing human affairs. Now, what I think is great about your explanation is that you don't want to oversimplify this and say, oh, therefore, all of these models are ultimately exploitative. I mean, you recognize that there is quite a bit of liberatory potential in those models. And I think we all experience those benefits every day. Like, I am glad that Netflix never recommends to me a Matt Damon movie because it knows that I hate Matt Damon and I'm not going I'm not going to like it. So, I mean, there are ways in which it makes our lives more efficient and easier. But, you know, there is this other side. So I was wondering if you could talk about objectification in that sense. That's so important to your argument 
argument in your book. Sure. Let me start by saying thanks. I appreciate you. I don't think anyone else has expressed that they actually found that funny, the part about the gate agent. So I'm really <laughs> glad to hear that, uh, that someone finally did because I amused myself quite a bit when I was writing it. So thank you. I was also amused. <laughs> thank you for that, Lee. There's a 90% chance that if you use that in your next book, I will still be amused. <laughs> okay. Yeah, maybe I'll just <laughs> throw it. Uh, yeah. Do like Zizek and just cut the couple yeah, of paragraphs right. and put it directly into <laughs> yeah. the yeah. new book. Yeah. But right, more seriously, the, the question of objectification. I think a lot about the ways in which we create these kind of systems that manage our affairs. And this is what I think, you know, relates back to this question of truth. It's less about what is true and more about the creation of a world where you have to act in a certain way, you know, if you want to be able to Mm -hmm. pay rent or get a mortgage or these kinds of things. And I think it, it ultimately points to the ways in which probability and knowledge production and statistics are tied into political economy, right? They're ways of essentially calculating what the most efficacious step to take given a sort of socio-political economic situation that one finds oneself in. And so what I try to say in the book is that I don't think that that's necessarily bad or even escapable. You know, I, I think that there's a certain strand of leftism that sort of believes we could envision a world where humans are completely in control of everything and we have ultimate agency and we can rationalize everything. And to my mind, that seems completely impossible. And that there is, in fact, some benefit to allowing machines or objects to manage our affairs, as Marx says, behind our backs. It really comes down to what the regime of political economy is, of value production, what it is that we value, and how it is that those things manage our affairs for us. And I think inside capitalism, it's really hard to imagine a world in which those things manage our affairs in any way other than serving capital. The fact that you describe the Bayesian statistical model as primarily driven by profit motives is a little bit of a sneaky move on your part, because I think that it does incline people to think of profit motives only in the capitalist economic sense. Whereas really the model is a model of risk and reward. And if we redefine what the risks are and what the rewards are, then we could say there are many ways that we could have the exact same model. It could still be profit driven. That is to say, maximizing rewards and minimizing risks and not be as exploitative as it is currently in the techno-capitalist world that we find ourselves in. I completely agree. And I should have just been a little less sneaky about it. (laughs) But the idea isn't that Bayesian statistics is this like bad bourgeois science that we need to to reject, but that you can't ask these questions of how it functions by separating it from political economy. Mm -hmm. In a lot of ways, I think that the Bayesian revolution is this amazing discovery that knowledge production is intimately tied and can't be divorced from political economy. And so exactly like you said, it doesn't mean that we have to throw out the entirety of the model, but that ultimately in order to fix the model or to make it work better, we need to reconceptualize what it is that is being calculated at the end in terms of the profits. And and you're absolutely right that, you know, that that means sort of reconceptualizing what the sort of the risks and the rewards are of being right in different directions. Like we could even imagine including the risks of climate change into these models as something that we think mm-hmm. about trying to avoid or, or something along those lines. One of the things I liked about your point about objectification is it, it 
really reminded me of how in the section on commodities by Marx, he ends with this sort of fantastic situation of the commodities speaking amongst themselves. Yeah. And to some extent, that thing which Marx uses fantastic image for, it kind of happens now. Because when I buy something, say on Amazon, for example, that commodity is immediately related to other commodities that other people have bought without it passing through any person or consciousness. I mean, one of the ways I remember years ago that this worked out for me is that years ago, Glenn Beck, for whatever reason, was obsessed <laughs> with the Invisible Committee's book, The Coming Insurrection. Mm. He would talk about it incessantly. And I bought that book through Amazon. And because some of Glenn Beck's listeners also bought it, suddenly I was getting recommendations for like <laughs> Sarah Palin's autobiography. Now, if anyone knows me or knows anything about me, knows I have no interest in Sarah Palin's autobiography. But because this recommendation sure, sure. passed through the commodities themselves, no one ever stopped to think about that. But the second thing, and, and this goes back to what I was interested in earlier in terms of like this revolution, is that what I find very interesting is that this sort of objectification of thinking appears to us, phenomenologically speaking, as an intense personalization in the sense mm -hmm. that when I log on to my computer, what I see is something that only I see. Instagram once showed me some company that made knit ties named after and based on the aesthetic of classic films. So I saw the Sidney Poitier name tie. And I like knit ties and I like old movies. <laughs> and there's no way I would have seen seen this tie out in the world. The chances of me seeing this tie out in the world are pretty slim. But somehow, because of my habits, I saw something that almost felt like it was created just for me. Like a very niche little, you know, who wants the Sydney Poitier tie? I didn't the buy same it. people who want to read Sarah Palin's <laughs> autobiography. <laughs> so, I mean, what I find interesting is that, I mean, just thinking in terms of Marx and the, and the way that Marx is talking about both the way something appears and the way something is calculated, that what we see now is a very objective calculation that appears as a highly individualistic targeting, right? That I see a web that looks like my interests when I go on, and so does everyone else. And that kind of standardization that appears as specialization seems to be a very interesting knot to untie and think about both the way this is being utilized, but also the ways that this could be transformed. That's really interesting. And, and those are some great examples. I kind of like in my head, I imagine maybe they even just like this company that made the tie doesn't even exist. Right. They just like there's some computers <laughs> like coming up with fake companies. And then if you, you know, click on it, then they, you know, have some automatic system and they spin up the company and like a computer hires 30 people to start knitting the ties just in case it happens yeah. to work. But yeah, I mean, in a certain sense, there is something that is potentially exciting about that, that these things can be personal and that they can respond to our individual needs. And, and one of the things, I mean, this is to step back a little bit, but that I found really interesting in writing this book was thinking about the ways in which so much of what economics does, I mean, not economics like it's taught in universities, but political economy, is that it really is a system for relating our individual desires to universal principles, mm -hmm. mediating in a certain sense between who we are as individuals and the global system of production. And in a lot of ways, that's exactly what statistics does as well, is it mediates between individual facts, individual bits of data, and the larger production of knowledge. And so I think that there is something that's really both interesting and necessary there, but it ultimately sort of comes back to what it is that we value, whether or not the things that we value are overcoming exploitation and oppression or having the most appropriate knit tie for lecturing or something like that. <laughs> so there's also a level at which these questions are questions of balance as well, right? Because the more these systems become efficient, 
there's a necessary trade-off with robustness. And this is something we saw with COVID with all of the sort of just-in-time production and getting things, you know, only having them sitting in a warehouse for a day or two. If there's some outside event that disrupts things, all of those efficiencies actually become huge stumbling blocks to having a, a robust system that can deal with these kinds of interruptions. And so... I think part of it is reminding ourselves that in a lot of ways, what we see as this sort of ultra personalization is the downstream effects of decisions that are made about value and about the difference and exchanges between robustness and efficiency. There's an interesting kind of phenomenon that we could imagine where if recommendation algorithms, I'm just going to say like generally, were able to operate without corporate restrictions, really maximize personalized recommendations for everyone, at some point it does seem as if their success would undermine their future potential. Because if everything is so personalized, then you don't have categories to separate people into and determine probabilities on which some will be more risk maximizing and some will be more reward maximizing. So that's one possible phenomenon. The other phenomenon, though, is that if you have corporate overlords you know, controlling and restricting these algorithms in very specific profit-driven ways then actually the personalizations only feel like personalizations, right? And this is the same kind of feedback loop that we see criticized in algorithms like predictive policing, et cetera, where you have an algorithm that's measuring a world that it is actually producing, right? That it's giving us a mathematical description of a world that itself is a product of its prior mathematical descriptions. And so, you know, I wonder if we really have to get on the algorithm audits train, you know, because I don't think that we can get rid of these Bayesian models. I don't think we want to get rid of these Bayesian models, but these Bayesian models in the hands of basically five globally dominant corporations is dangerous. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the other things that I draw from Marx in this book is the sort of discussion of the general intellect and the ways in which production, especially science has advanced, really draws on the intellect and our global understanding. And one of the things that I see happening with the sort of corporatization of these algorithms is in a a certain way, a a movement of enclosure, right? That Mm -hmm. we have these shared understandings, you know, both of the sort of mathematics, but also the categories that you're talking about, both that were categorized into and are the sites for resisting power in terms of race and gender and these sorts of things. But I think what we're seeing in a lot of ways is this enclosure of the general intellect, that companies are taking little pieces of this knowledge and wrapping them inside themselves and making sure that other people don't have access to them in terms of proprietary data sets, proprietary algorithms. And so we're sort of constantly producing this new world, but it's a new world that we don't actually have access to. And so I think in a lot of ways that feeds into these systems that you're talking about where what they're doing is reproducing the old world, but in ways that they can continually extract profit from it. So one of the examples that I give in, in the book is Project Grayball that Uber was using. And so yeah, yeah. Um, what they did, and they did this in a number of countries, was they actually had an algorithm in their app that would try to determine if someone was a regulator and if they a governmental regulator, and if they were with the government, then they like wouldn't show them any rides so that they couldn't actually regulate them. And I think that, you know, oftentimes when we talk about algorithms, we think about the production of truth, the understanding of what's going on in the world. But I think if you think in terms of 
of this, the enclosure of the general intellect and all the things, Lee, that you were talking about, that what we're actually seeing, the way in which it is easiest to make profit is actually to create a new world, like this sort of fake world that Uber was creating, where, you know, they couldn't be regulated. And so you get this arms race where the best way to profit is actually to destroy your interlocutor's knowledge than to actually produce knowledge of the world. And so we get caught in this very specific trap that's difficult to find our way out of. And I think this is one of the greatest metaphysical contributions that Marx makes, and Jason was touching on this earlier, namely that within capitalism, things are made to appear in a certain way. That being made to appear has no interest in truth or reality whatsoever. And so part of Marx's whole Copernican turn is to say, well, what if we just analyze the ways in which these things are made to appear by capitalism? And when we can show those mechanisms, then suddenly we might realize holy crap, workers are fucked. Um, and I'm hearing a lot of that kind of discussion in terms of this revolution in probability, namely the revolution from frequentism to Bayesianism, as in fact, I think, Justin, part of your argument is it makes things appear in our world in a different way. And in particular, it makes knowledge appear in our world in a way that is remarkably different than other models in which knowledge has appeared in our world up until this point. Hey, listeners, we've got three quick asks from your hosts here at Hotel Bar Sessions. First, if you haven't done so already, make sure that you're subscribed to this podcast on whatever platform that you listen to podcasts. Second, Hop on over to Twitter and make sure that you followed Hotel Bar Podcast there. We're at Hotel Bar Podcast, and you can find the Twitter handles of all three co-hosts in the bio there. And third, and probably most importantly, we would really appreciate it if you could recommend us to your friends and share our podcast posts on your social media. So Justin, Lee pointed out way back at the beginning of our conversation that you kind of use revolution in two senses in the phrase revolutionary mathematics. The one sense is that you carefully analyze a revolutionary shift that was brought about in the thinking of probability and even the mathematics of probability. But then there's another sense, I think, where you want to talk about a different kind of mathematics that would be revolutionary in a different kind of way. And so I was wondering if you could point us a little bit in that direction, like what kind of revolution are you trying to advance? What kind of revolution are you in the vanguard of? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I think in a certain sense, I maybe understand these two terms as being a little bit closer even, because I think one of the things that's really interesting to me and thinking especially about objectification is the way in which these shifts in our understanding of the world have then downstream revolutionary effects, you know, so we can mm. think about mm -hmm. the ways in which the steam engine or tailorization, you know, obviously were revolutions in production, but then they also play into the social revolutions that come about around the same sort of time. 
To my mind, when I think about a revolutionary mathematics as a future project, it really means essentially connecting the mathematical models that we have to these larger questions of political economy and recognizing the ways in which they're mutually entwined with each other and the ways in which we could potentially imagine other futures, but imagine them in such a way that a new objectification is possible. And one of the things that's always sort of fascinated me about Marx, and this was, Rick, what I think you were getting at a little bit earlier, the way in which capitalism becomes this world that we live in whether or not we believe in it, right? I draw in the book a fair bit on the work of Moisha Postone and and his Mm. discussion of the translation between concrete domination and abstract domination, that one of the ways in which capitalism oppresses people is through the creation of abstract domination. We don't really know who it is or where these forces are coming from, but we find ourselves sort of following them and, and the oppression that follows with them. And so the idea, and you know, and admit that in a lot of ways, this is really an open question for me, maybe it's a, another book project, is sort of how it's possible that we could imagine another world, imagine another metaphysics, another system of value, and then the ways in which the mathematics would have to follow that. Yeah, I mean, I think that to some extent, the sort of classical defenses of capitalism coming from like Adam Smith and so on, were all about the idea that essentially the market is a very efficient system for gathering information and allocating production, right? And to some extent, I think part of what might be revolutionary about thinking of statistics and and various forms of information gathering is that they are different ways of gathering information. And by and large, right now, I mean, we've been talking about advertising so much, that information is primarily used to pinpoint products to people, right? The new system of information is subordinated to the old system of information being the market. Mm -hmm. And I feel like the big question, and I'm not well suited for this, but I feel like this is where you're going, and I think it's very interesting, is to think about like, what would it be like to liberate this system of gathering information from the market as a system for gathering information? information, right? Because we know that the market system for gathering information is fundamentally flawed in all sorts of ways, especially the ways in which it is, as we see, tilted towards already existing wealth. And those who already have wealth can sort of move into this new site of information and be able to utilize that as well. So yeah, I guess I'm just wondering, is that along some of the ways you're thinking about what it would mean to liberate this form of the accumulation and dissemination of knowledge from the market as a form of the accumulation and centralization of both knowledge and power. And wealth. And wealth. Yes. Yeah. No, that's a that's a really good way to put it. And I think in the short term, one of the tasks ahead of us is to continually show how in this sort of new model of knowledge production, capitalism no longer functions, right? That it's not just that like it doesn't function for a certain class or a certain group of people. But I think even now what we're starting to see is that in the halls of power, capitalism no longer functions. It no longer produces the sorts of knowledge that it needs to. And I think there are ways that you can see that all of the issues that are going on with the post-truth and disinformation, the replication crises in the sciences, the problems confronting the university and academia writ large are, to my mind, fundamentally crises of capitalism. Here, here. And I think to understand crises of knowledge, you have to understand them as crises of capitalism. And so if you think about the origins of capitalism, it's sort of this proof that the old modes of economy don't work any longer. And so I think in order to open up the space that we can imagine new modes of both knowledge production and economy, the immediate task is to demonstrate and show how ineffective capitalism is in a way that's even more totalizing than the current 
critiques of capitalism as exploitative. Of course, it's important to connect it back to those old critiques and forms of oppression that are inherent in capitalism, but to show that it no longer even functions for the purpose that, you know, Adam Smith or Hayek or these people thought Mm -hmm. that it could. I mean, isn't it also the case, though, that what capitalism demonstrated was that truth that is not utile is not a truth that we need to be concerned about, right? And so I guess I'm curious because in what you just said, it sounds to me like you want to return to a model of truth, a sort of pre-modern model of truth that is disconnected from risk and reward, that's disconnected from a profit motive. But I also feel like after finishing your book, I got the sense that there is no going back that you believe. Yeah, I really firmly believe that there's no going back in a lot of ways that these old models never really worked. And I think that that's one of the important thing about the Bayesian discovery is that these old models, they were connected to political economy, but they were connected in ways that they didn't even know and they couldn't analyze. Mm -hmm. And so my point is that we can't go back, that there is no return to this modern notion of transcendent truth, but that what ultimately we need to do is to align the production of truth with the political economy that we collectively desire. Ultimately, that these two questions can't be asked separately of each other. You can't just imagine a world where we continue to have capitalism with all of its problems and a functioning system of collective knowledge production, that the solution to both of these problems is the same in a certain sense. But after the revolution, could I still order my Sidney Poitier tie and have it delivered today? (laughs) We'll We'll have to talk to the planners about that one. Unfortunately, our bartender is giving us a last call, so we've got to wrap it up here today. I'm going to ask Rick to call us an Uber, or no, sorry, call us a Lyft, because I fucking hate Uber. I'm going to ask, <laughs> ask Rick to call us a Lyft while we're waiting. But Justin, this has been such a great conversation, and I do want to say again that your book is absolutely one of my most favorite books I've read this year. And I want to say to our listeners that if it sounds like this is a book for math nerds, it's definitely not. He is crystal clear in his explanation of things that probably most people don't have any background in or don't intuitively know. And this is a very accessible and very persuasive and interesting book. So I really do recommend that everybody get that. Uh, Because we're locked out of certain proprietary algorithms, we have no way of targeting you. We can't find you when you're you're online on Instagram. So you have to come to us. And the best way for you to come to us, because we still need resources, is through Patreon. So look for Hotel Bar Sessions on Patreon. We need your support. And we will not target you with ads after you support us because... We don't have the ability to do that. Thanks. (laughs) (laughs) But if you ask nicely, we'll send you a knit tie. Yes. Any final words for our listeners? Uh, Thank you all for having me on. And I think the thing that I'd like to leave everyone with is that even if, you know, like Lee, you were saying, these seem like really technical questions, they really are sort of deep philosophical questions that are incredibly important to our moment that I think anyone should be able to engage with. So I hope that if people are interested, they take a look at the book and start asking questions about, you know, what probability is, 
what statistics are, and the ways in which they're responsible for producing the world that we live in right now. All right, guys, it looks like our ride is here, and I'm going to not tell you the statistics for getting on the road after leaving a bar. We'll just have to risk it. <laughs> Thanks so much, Justin. Thanks, Thank Justin. You. Thank you. Thank you.